you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. I'm joined this week by critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com, co-host of The Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series as well, and Leo Lowenstein with us on the program this week. We begin with the comedic horror film Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix. The film is written and directed by Ari Aster. Christy, what do you think of Bo? Bo is Afraid. We could do an entire hour just on Bo is Afraid, but I will talk about it in ways that don't spoil it because there's so much to say here. This is the third film from writer-director Ari Aster. He did Hereditary and Midsummer, both huge hits for A24. He's legendary already, and so there's a lot of expectations surrounding this film. Joaquin Phoenix is Bo. And he is super afraid from the very beginning of this film. And you feel in visceral ways his anxiety, whether it is just in his mind or the world truly is the hellscape in which we see him living. He gets this news that he has to go home and see his mother. He is very anxious about this. He's very anxious about every step of the way leading up to going to see her. And the film is a three-hour nightmare odyssey of him trying to get home to see his mother on the anniversary of his father's death. The first hour or so is thrilling and the pacing and just the details and the production design, it really puts you inside of his head for better and for worse. And then from there, you are just slogging through molasses with him because it's like one setback after another, after another. And it goes in these increasingly bizarre and hypnotic and kind of dreamlike scenarios. Again, you don't know what's really happening. You don't know what is a manifestation of of his fear. Um, It is always spectacular to look at. There are some great supporting performances from Parker Posey, Amy Ryan, Nathan Lane, but... And there's a whole giant animated section in the middle that's just like something out of a like Michelle Gondry film or Julie Taymor. It's, it's a wildly eclectic kind of pastiche of influences and, and visuals And it just keeps going like it's for better and for worse. Again, people love this movie. I am very much in the minority on not loving this movie. I appreciate it for its craft. I appreciate that Joaquin Phoenix has some moments here that are exciting. But for the most part, he's a passenger in his own existence. And that's really boring. He is like actively passive. And um, so it's hard to get on board with wanting him to make his way where he's supposed to be. Um, I have heard from folks that this is a, a really like frighteningly true and authentic depiction of anxiety. And for that reason, it's resonating for a lot of people. But I just felt like over and over again, where are we going with this? What is happening? It is just, it's so slow sometimes and so dull and just so overindulgent. But a lot of folks love it. Having said that, I kind of think people should see it. (laughs) Which I realize doesn't sound like what I'm saying. Um, If you love Ari Aster's previous films, this is worth seeing, but those two earlier movies had a, a cohesion and a focus and a tension and a thrill that this just lacks. So I'm very torn on this. What about humor? Is is it funny? There are some darkly funny moments scattered throughout, and thank God they're there. <laughs> the movie is Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix from writer-director Ari Aster. Uh, the film's rated R. It's in wide release. The documentary Judy Bloom Forever um, takes us into the life of uh, the writer for uh, adolescent readers. The film is directed by Davina Pardo and Leah Walchok. Leah, what do you think of Judy Bloom Forever? I loved this film. And having said that, I, I also loved a film by these directors called Very Semi-Serious, which was a documentary about New Yorker cartoonists, which everyone should go check out if they haven't seen it yet. Um, this film 
is a wonderfully vibrant portrait of someone who is still in her 90th decade, I think quite quite vibrant herself. Judy Bloom, I think, is 85, and she, while not writing anymore, she is incredibly charming, very charismatic, talks with great um, insight and incredibly articulately about her role as an author, a young adult author, and just as a reminder. Bloom wrote, you know, the iconic young adult books, um, Deanie, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Fudge, Forever, uh, which was a, a tale of, of young love, um, and, you know, was was loved by legions and legions of fans. One of the great treasures of the film is its access to her boxes of correspondence from over decades with uh with her with with various fans some of whom she she personally corresponded with for decades she was sort of like a surrogate parent or therapist or auntie to them and they would write and ask her for advice and it was amazing because she felt like a safe space to them to be able to disclose personal things or talk about their struggles it's a wonderfully crafted very very thoughtful and very true to its subject documentary. I, I really thought it, it it came alive so much. Also, great contributions from other authors, um, sex experts, um, um, teachers, so on and so forth, celebrities Molly Ringwald and, and Lena Dunham. Another point, just to make quickly, is that it's this film could not be more timely. I mean, the point is made in the film that, you know, in the 80s when the moral majority came about and Phyllis Schlafly and Pat Buchanan and all that, there were people who were complaining that her books were salacious. They are anything but, anything but salacious. But people were, you know, calling to ban books and burn books back then. This, of course, is happening again. We're seeing another movement very similar to this. And she speaks, you know, quite affectingly about about how troubling it is to see this cycle coming back again. Um, but I thought it was just a terrific documentary. Whether you like Judy Bloom or not, whether you've ever read her books, go see this. It's so good. Judy Bloom Forever, the documentary. Christy? I loved it, too. Was totally charmed by it. She has such an authentic presence, doesn't she? It just shines through. She seems so accessible and so true and so lovely all these years later. And her personal story is fascinating the way that she came to be a writer and at a time when you know you were raised to be a wife and a mom and live in suburbia mm-hmm. and she was taught to you know go live on this cul-de-sac in New Jersey and that's your role and the other women on the block were so condescending to her like oh how's your little book coming <laughs> right <laughs> Little wonder, did they know right? what was coming. I wonder what they think now. And just the way that she persevered. She talks very candidly about her divorces and raising her children and how the the correspondence with the readers not only continues to make her current and inform her as to what kids are thinking and feeling. One of the young women says, you know, I'm reporting to you from the front lines. <laughs> and that's really charming that she's able to use all that. But it's really unexpectedly emotional mm. when you see how personal these relationships become and how much these kids trust her and just the details of like they're writing to her on Hello Kitty and Star Wars stationary <laughs> and her books are you know universal in terms of their emotion but like very specific in terms of culture but I'm so glad that they still translate to kids today who don't know what rotary phones are right. but yeah I found myself getting really choked up watching her talk about how important that that correspondence was with all of those kids so mm. it's lovely judy bloom forever a documentary from directors davina pardo and leah wolchuk uh the film's unrated and you can see judy bloom forever at the lemley royal theater in west la it's also streaming on amazon prime video Chevalier, a biographical drama starring Kelvin Harrison Jr. The film's directed by Stephen Williams, written by Stephanie Robinson. Christy, what did you think of Chevalier? It's really solid and really well made, maybe a little safe in terms of its structure and its tone, but it's a story that I'm guessing the vast majority of people don't know. This is about a prolific violinist and composer and conductor who's also a champion fencer in Marie Antoinette's France named Joseph Bologna. He was the Chevalier de Saint-Georges and he was of mixed race. His father was a French plantation owner on the island of Guadeloupe and his mother was a slave. And he gets dumped off at the school in France and told to go be excellent. And he happens to have this incredible 
violin skill and he's just charming and he's confident and you see how that allows him to ascend to the highest echelons of French society. Marie Antoinette is like his BFF and uh, whatever he does though, no matter how great he is, he never quite belongs, right? He never quite fit in. Racism and classism will always keep him in what they believe should be his place. And so um, Kelvin Harrison Jr. is totally in command here. Um, you notice it from the beginning when you when you see his walk for the first time. It's this mixture of like a bounce and a strut. And it indicates so much about his confidence and himself and his abilities and his charisma. But it's also about how he code switches until he realizes that he can't and uh, his his mother becomes freed and then joins him in France and he has to come to terms with his true identity um, it's a really solidly made film everyone's very good in it um, Samara Weaving is very good as the opera singer with whom he has this totally scandalous affair she is very white and very married to a general who is very powerful who is humorless and does not see the point of art at all um, so they have some nice spiky fun chemistry with each other um, it just feels a little safe for somebody whose life you know took so many chances and it was such a, a maverick in so many ways I wish the film itself had been a little more daring but it's really well made great costume drama and very educational Chevalier is rated PG-13 it's in wide release and also available on demand Joyland a Pakistani drama that's directed by Saeem Sadiq uh, Lael please tell us about Joyland this is a really extraordinary film, and I should also add that it is the first film by this filmmaker, Siam Sadiq. It was the first Pakistani film to win a big prize at the Cannes Film Festival, maybe even the first one uh, that was entered into its particular competition slate. Um, it was also shortlisted for the Best International Film Oscar. It didn't make the final five, but it, it got a ton of international attention. It also has been the subject of some controversy. It was banned in Pakistan for a while until it was uh, the ban was kind of overturned, but it's still partially banned in Pakistan. It is the story of a family. It's a family drama, but it's also a love story, a coming out story. It's a story of dealing with um, personal ambition, personal um, expression versus a, patri a very deeply established and entrenched patriarchy um, and tradition. It's the story of a young man named Heder who is very meek and very shy, and he's sort of in a uh, kind of a blah marriage uh, to a woman who's not terribly attractive, and he is basically a homemaker, and uh, he takes a job as a backup dancer to an exotic dancer who happens to be beautiful. Her name is Biba, and she is trans. By the way, in Pakistan, trans is a third gender. Um, and it's it's a little bit scandalous. His 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 father isn't supposed to know. There's you know so so they have to sort of disguise what he's actually doing. Uh, he just says he's a theater manager, but that you know of course he's actually as he learns to become you know to to dance, he's sort of expressing himself and coming into his own personality. So he there is a little bit of a love story with B, but but also there's there's kind of this gentle love love with his wife, and um, it's it's a really deeply affecting, very powerful incredibly accomplished and very mature first film. We're talking about the movie Joyland, Christy. I was really impressed by it too. Everyone's really great in it and this is something that could have been cutesy like, oh, here's this awkward guy learning how to dance and he's terrible but they never play up the silliness of it. There's always emotional authenticity as far as everyone's motivations here and what's fascinating is that once he takes this job like slowly but surely that affects everybody else in the family and it allows them to begin to explore all of their untapped desires and things that they couldn't even think about because of the oppressive patriarchal society and so that subtle transformation the way everyone gets affected is really is really fascinating and uh, quite compelling yeah just a sort of a, a gentle kind of gauzy look about it a lot of really cool stuff with the lighting at night and like shot. alleyways and through windows mm -hmm. that's subtle but so dramatic uh, also Sarwat Gilani is great as his sister-in-law who smokes 
so bold, right? Mm-hmm. She smokes outdoors, <laughs> um, but she's really funny as kind of a voice of reason. So everyone gets these moments to shine, and it's really quite impressive. We're talking about the Pakistani film Joyland, which was that country's submission for the most recent Oscars, which is interesting, Lael, in light of what you were saying about exactly. it being partially banned. It's not the same thing, though. There's an arts committee that, that makes that decision, then there's the government ministry uh, that, that, that makes the decision to, to ban it. So it's their, they can so be the arts committee isn't controlled by the government. Right. That's interesting. It also yeah. won at the Spirit Awards, too. Mm. Independent yep. here in Los Angeles. Joyland is the film. It's directed by Saeem Sadiq, who co-wrote the film with Maggie Briggs. It's unrated. It's in Punjabi and Urdu with English subtitles. You can see it at Landmark's New Art Theater in West Los Angeles. We have more films to review with our critics when we come back in just one minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Leah Lowenstein and Christy Lemire. Next up this week, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, uh, action thriller starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Guy Ritchie, of course, since his name's in the title, directs it <laughs> and co-wrote the film with Ivan Atkinson and Marn Davies. Christy? It's so strange that this is called Guy Ritchie's The Covenant because you would never know that Guy Ritchie directed this movie. Otherwise, really? it's it such a distinct style. Exactly. And you would never know that watching this. It's a real departure for him stylistically. It's not the whiz bang, cheeky, zippy, British mobsters, you know, and needle drops and all that. Um, I am a fan of quite a few Guy Ritchie movies, but he did in a lot of ways seem to be making the kind of same kind of film over and over again. And this feels like a breath of fresh air and like he's really reinvigorated in paring it down and telling a simpler story. Like the the filmmaking muscularity is there, but it's in a much more muted key. So this feels like it might have been a true story, but it's not. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal plays a U.S. Army sergeant in Afghanistan. He and his interpreter, played by Dar Salim, who is excellent, um, they are part of a team that goes and finds a a bunch of IEDs being made in a mine. Everyone is killed and the interpreter saves his life and then he in turn has to save the gentleman's life. Um, it is so well made and so thoughtful and um, just both both actors are great in this and it feels like, oh, Afghanistan was so long ago but we really only just fully pulled out of there and like less than two years ago. And this just feels like Guy Ritchie's sort of like quiet anger over the fact that we have forgotten about all of this and that all these interpreters were promised visas to come and become U.S. citizens for helping us out. And so um, it's really well made. You think you've seen the story before, but um, it moves at such a great clip and everyone's so good in it that I think it's worth checking out. Guy Ritchie's The Covenant starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Dar Salim is rated R. It's in wide release. Uh, The musical drama Carmen uh, stars Paul Meskel. Uh, The film is directed by Benjamin Mia Pie. Uh, What did you think, Christy, of Carmen? It's Carmen, but it's not really Carmen. Like, her name is Carmen, but there's not really a whole lot to tie it to the Carmen that we know. Um, Melissa Barrera stars as a young woman named Carmen. She is Mexican and is crossing into the United States. Around the same time, Paul Meskel, who is this former soldier who is sort of isolated and suffering from some PTSD, is helping out on Border Patrol and helps her flee uh, and make her way across the country to Los Angeles. It is 
so shockingly alive. Like, it sounds like a whole lot. It is a, like, musical, dance, modern-day, road trip, magical realism version of Carmen. And I never knew where it was going. I was thrilled over and over again. Benjamin Mupier is a longtime choreographer. He did, like, the choreography in Black Swan, for example. And uh, he really let you luxuriate in the dance long takes and uh, Rossi De Palma is in this as sort of a, a fairy godmother to Carmen and she's of course Almodovar's longtime muse and collaborator she brings a strong presence to it so I thought this was really cool and strange we're talking about Carmen what do you think Lael I think this is an easy film to admire and a difficult film to like mm. I uh, I appreciated it uh, for its production values for what uh, what it was as an artistic kind of reimagining as a sort of vision, but it was kind of weird and 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 kind of just went on and wasn't really sure where it was going. I particularly want to call out the uh, the cinematography, which mm-hmm. I thought was excellent by Jorg Wiedmer, mm-hmm. and also the score by Nicholas Bertel oh, yeah. from Succession. Um, a really interesting score, a lot of strings here, a lot of violins, and, and a lot of choral work, which is very odd, but it gives it this sort of strangely soulful, kind of otherworldly kind of thing going on. Um, it was... Uh, there's like a hell. It's like a hellish dreamscape, but it's very well constructed and very kind of evocative in that way. But narratively, it just sort of drifts, and you're not really sure what's going on. It has sort of a noirish feel, but it's an odd film. Uh, filmed in Mexico and Los Angeles, Carmen is in English and Spanish. It's rated R, and it's at the Lemley Royal in West Los Angeles. Wildlife, a nature documentary that's directed by Chai Vasarelli and Jimmy Chin. Leo, what do you think of Wildlife? Well, this is the latest documentary from that incredibly talented and very successful pair who did, of course, Free Solo and The Rescue. Um, And, you know, they are very, very good at shaping this material and using these amazing drone cameras and and um and also chin as a cinematographer photographer as well his work too but they i think what they do here is they really shape this kind of unwieldy material into a narrative this is kind of a love story wrapped around a tale of ecological conservation or maybe the other way around i'm not sure but it's the story of doug tompkins and his wife christine who uh became uh, some of the most important um, ecological conservationists in Chile and Patagonia and, and Argentina. They bought tens of thousands of acres and um, sort of pressured the government to match their their purchase to create an incredible national park. And um, so that in itself is really impressive. Also, the interviews with Yvonne Chenard, the founder of Patagonia. And there's a lot of footage of Tompkins, who, alas, passed away in 2015. Um, but a lot of footage of him interviews. He also was a founder of the North Face. And these companies became you know, very prominent in, in ecological work as well, in conservation and being environmentally conscious. It's also lots of interviews with Christine Tompkins and really a story of how she sort of fought her way back from grief. It's, a, it's beautifully told and a little bit sort of shifting and shapeless, but but still affecting. And our John Horn is going to be in conversation later this hour with Christine and with Chai, uh, co-director of the film about wildlife. That's the movie that we're reviewing. Christy? Yeah, it's so well made, and it really puts you in the middle of some just breathtaking scenery. Jimmy Chin is so respected, not only as a filmmaker, but also like primarily as a climber, as an adventurer. I think these folks really trust him, and they know that you know he's going to tell their story the right way And so he is part of the film. He's on camera. Um, He's in this world of this world. Um, But, yeah, it's a lot of different kinds of movie at once, isn't it? Like, I didn't know that the people who did The North Face also did a spree. Right. And then Chris was, like, the CEO of Patagonia. I mean, it's it's a whole lot of, like, a whole other movie there, kind of. Yeah, I think it presented (laughs) a lot of sort of structural challenges to them. And Mm -hmm. the fact that they were able to sort of, you know, rope this into Mm -hmm. something that they could make into a, a cohesive narrative is a great credit to them. Yeah. And the fact that they also had to like work with the Chilean government, mm. who was inherently mistrustful of their intentions, right. and understandably thought so. of them as eco-terrorists and, initially. Yeah. yeah, but the scenery is startling, and the love story is moving. Wildlife is the film. It's unrated. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica, the Cinemark in Ventura, and it's streaming on Disney Plus. 
Little Richard, I Am Everything tells the story of Richard Penniman and his huge influence on early rock and roll, not to mention his own personal saga. Little Richard, I Am Everything is directed by Lisa Cortez. Christy. Just so cool, so fun. He's just such a charismatic and fascinating figure. And in the contradictions because of them and in spite of them. And it follows his highs and lows of like embracing his incredibly flamboyant and wildly charismatic and talented self with these like interludes of denouncing his homosexuality and like embracing Christianity. And then once again, realizing, oh yeah, I am super gay and talented. Let me go and share that with the world because also it's profitable. So there are these highs and lows of like him trying to figure out who he is but along the way so many performances so many interviews and you do realize in retrospect how enormously influential he was not just on performers like Prince quite obviously but like also Mick Jagger says I never knew you could use up the whole stage until I saw <laughs> Laura Richard do that um, and then you know, going down to like Lizzo or Harry Styles you see the, the flashy Elton John of course the flashiness of him and just how he didn't get enough credit for so many years for really birthing so much of what we know to be rock and roll now yeah yeah, trailblazers term kind of gets tossed around. He really, if anyone qualifies in rock, that would be Little Richard because of his persona and presentation in addition to the music. He had the goods with both. Uh, Leo, what do you think of Little Richard, I Am Everything? I thought this was a, a, a really ener- energetic and well-sourced documentary about about the legendary Little Richard. I d- there was a lot that I didn't know about him. I didn't know how deeply conflicted he was about his his homosexuality and and you know how he had completely renounced his music for periods of time to go to you know study theology and to get a degree and so forth and to become ordained or whatever um i and and how that kind of inner conflict that turmoil persisted in him even up until the end until he he passed um i also didn't realize how deeply he had influenced so many of these other artists it was remarkable to hear paul mccartney talk about the fact that they little richard came up to see them in liverpool when they were just starting out and they were like starstruck and then he took them to germany and they basically were, I, I think, maybe his warm-up band for his, his opening act. They got to see him play for 30 nights in a row. It was just incredible. And they talk about just this legendary legacy. If anyone needs to know, he's responsible for songs like Good Golly, Miss Molly, Tutti Fruity, Lucille, which were covered by people like Elvis and Pat Boone in <laughs> soul-crushingly vapid ways. Um <laughs> Pat Boone, not Elvis. But uh, anyway, uh, he was incredibly talented. It's nice to see him finally get his due. He calls himself the architect of rock and roll. Little Richard, I Am Everything, unrated, directed by Lisa Cortez. You can see it on demand as well as at the Lumiere Cinema in Beverly Hills starting later this month. The romantic action-adventure Ghosted stars Anna de Armas, Chris Evans, and Amy Sedaris. Dexter Fletcher directed Lael. Well, the first few minutes of this film I thought were genuinely promising. There's a sort of a meet-cute with um, Chris Evans and Anna de Armas at a farmer's market, and you think that, you know, they might actually have genuine chemistry, and he's tr- he wants to sell her a plant. She says, well, I can't keep plants alive, and, you know, but I want a plant, but, you know, but I can't keep them alive. And he says, well, then you shouldn't get one. And so anyway, there's this banter. You think it's going to be charming. They have a day of falling in love and, you know, what, what goes on after that. Then he, she disappears. She ghosts him. He falls follows her to England because he's got a, uh, he doesn't know where she is, but he has one of those tile trackers on his inhaler, which ended up in her purse. Long story. And then things get blown up into a tale of espionage, violence, uh, Adrian Brody in a bad wig with a bad accent um, as, as an over-the-top villain. I mean, is this was just totally laughing. Oh, my God. Totally it was laughing. way too much. It was a madcap adventure that's, that sucked. And I, and, I, and I thought, is this what streaming is coming to? Mm-hmm. What a bummer. You make it sound so much more fun than it actually is. I was going to say, it actually I, sounds well, absurdly entertaining. Well, I if it could be fun with an audience maybe that liked yeah. it, but I, I wasn't that audience. I so. want the movie you saw. No. <laughs> it's, I, it's, I did Believe me, I didn't like it. This is the Apple TV Plus version of those Netflix movies, those big budget, glossy, empty, soulless movies with giant stars who 
may as well not even be in the same frame with each other because they have no chemistry whatsoever. Murder Mystery 2 was one of them recently right? with, with um, Jennifer Aniston. All the red notices, yeah. multiple red yeah. notices are still on their way. But for now, Apple TV Plus has ghosted. I really liked the idea of Ana de Armas being the one yeah. kicking butt and Chris Evans being, quote unquote, the girl who needs to be saved. Yeah. Right. That's kind of a fun switch. There are some very, very amusing cameos in here that made me laugh out loud. Uh, but it's like two hours long. Dexter Fletcher, the director of Rocket Man. Oh. <laughs> Ghosted, uh, rated PG-13, streaming on Apple TV+. And it's the 40th anniversary, hard to believe it, of Flashdance starring Jennifer Beals. Uh, and uh, how has it aged, Christy? She's just a steel town girl on a Saturday <laughs> night looking for the fight of her life. Again, 40 years later. She's timeless. Um so when I was a kid, when when this came out, it was just a huge cultural phenomenon because this is one of those movies where not only is the film itself a phenomenon, but the songs are huge radio hits. And this is the beginning of MTV. So like the video for Maniac was on yeah, constantly. Everywhere. Like I can still see the video for Maniac in my head. And uh, music is just different now, so nothing has quite that you know, omnipresence. But Flashdance was like naughty while also being a really traditional underdog sports story, essentially. And Jennifer Beals, so charismatic and just a fashion phenomenon. I mean, I had sweatshirts that I cut the neck out and wore <laughs> off the shoulder. I know you did leg too. Warmers. I did too, yes. Yeah. yes. Right? Yeah. Leg warmers, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, this is the movie that launched the sale of millions and millions of, of sweatshirts and was really good for Diet Pepsi. Also, um, it was, you know, it was very much of its time, of its moment. And if you look at the cast and crew or the crew really this is like a roadmap to the 80s you have a script by Joe Esterhaus who went on to do Basic Instinct you have some py flashy pyrotechnics it was produced by by Simpson and Bruckheimer okay who did Top Gun and a million other things it was directed by Adrian Lyne who was the king of sort of slick slightly sleazy naughtiness um, you know nine and a half weeks and so forth It it's a little troubling from a 2023 perspective because her boss hits on her relentlessly and that's not so cool but it's still kind of fun and it does hold up. I have to say it does hold up. Flashdance 40th anniversary. It's rated R. It's in select theaters. Coming up, our John Horn in conversation with those uh, from the film Wildlife, the documentary. We'll hear all about that in just 90 seconds. Haruale is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lemert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on, so we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. On any scorecard, nature is losing. Those are the words of conservationist Christine Tompkins, the subject of the new climate change documentary, Wildlife. Tompkins, her late husband, and the founder of the Patagonia clothing line spent billions purchasing acreage in Argentina and Chile to create national parks. The movie is from the filmmaking couple Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin, who made the Oscar-winning film Free Solo. LA Starts and Entertainment reporter John Horn spoke with Tompkins and Vassarelli about wildlife, whether or not such land deals really make a difference, and the concept of ecological colonialism. It's one thing for a filmmaker or filmmakers, Jimmy and Chai, to do a movie where there is the outward and visible sign of your work, which is the land itself. It's another thing to do a movie that tells a much more interior story, which is about 
your feelings and your thoughts and your diaries. And I'm yeah. wondering, the first one may be a little bit easier to wrap your head around. The second one may be harder. What were the conversations you had with Jimmy and Chai and maybe with yourself about sharing your diary entries, which are very personal and it oftentimes filled with, you know, a lot of sadness over the loss mm -hmm. of, of your husband? Oh, I think both all three of us would agree that if there was to be a film about us, it had to, they had to have everything. They could choose to use it or not use it, but I would never have done something like this unless they had access to everything. Just because I didn't want it to be superficial and I didn't want it to be too sweet in a way because we're not that sweet and the story is complex and has tough times in it and so on. And and for me, there's no story unless you tell the story as it unfolded. Chai, what was that conversation like? And I guess if there's a benchmark for you getting somebody to share his inner thoughts, it would be Alex Honnold of Free Solo, who is really happy to talk about climbing, not so much about his personal life. I would say that this was a real process. You know, mm -hmm. it took time. You know, I think that understandably so, like Chris, Yvonne, Doug, they were all incredibly private people. And they were also entrepreneurs who owned their own companies, you know, so it's not, I think it was very much this ethos of walking the walk and not doing the talk, if that makes sense. And um, mm -hmm. so I, I think, you know, it, like with Alex, like it's just this kind of process that you make a covenant with your participant that, you know, you ask them to trust you and you also trust them to give you, give of themselves and give of themselves like open-heartedly. Mm. And I think what was really, I don't know, like delicate here was that we were asking Chris to relive, you know, some of the most beautiful, but also some of the most difficult moments of her life while it was all still actively in process. Because I think, I mean, I think the film says so many different things. The thing that really spoke to me was this idea of second chances and like regeneration. Mm. And in wildlife, you see Chris, you know, at the height of her career at Patagonia, um, decide that, you know, there she needs more, she wants more, she deserves more. And that's terrifying, you know. And then finding the love of your life later in life, also terrifying. And then, you know, when the worst happens, finding vision, like the strength and the vision again, like to pick yourself up and fulfill some, fulfill this dream. So like that was the part that I felt incredibly moved by. And, but I think it was, you know, we were trying to, we were, act, we're trying to like step gingerly, which is not necessarily something that Jimmy and I do easily. Chris. I think what the film has done, which I didn't really anticipate it's being shown to people who are in their twenties they're like, and, and their thirties. And for Chileans, it's been a heavy impact to, because they feel like they finally have the whole story about these, uh, Doug was really sort of mythical. And, and so it's had a tremendous impact. It goes beyond what one might expect it to, which it, has been really pleasing. And it wasn't, entirely mythical, it might have also been negative, that there was a sense among some Chileans and Argentinians that you and your colleagues were um, ecological colonialists, that you were coming down to take care of land because the people there didn't know how to do it. And they were, I think, naturally nervous about what these interlopers were going to do. Um, and I think that's part of the legacy that's still being unwound. Would you agree? We, we have always felt that, first of all, working with local communities and the team members who build these parks are from their, their, their parks, they're from those countries. I think having donated everything back to the countries you know, dispels a lot of um, comments. And most importantly, what happened to the communities around these parks and how um, these parks are theirs now. You know, we were guests. It needs to be addressed because it's always wherever you are in the world. That is the question. 
Chai, you and Jimmy have made movies about climbing, so I'm going to use a climbing analogy, and that is about routes, the routes that you choose to get to a summit um, or to wherever it is you're going. A route for a movie like this could be a route that focuses on Doug, Doug Tompkins. It could be a route that focuses on Chris Tompkins. It could be a route that focuses on Yvonne Chouinard. It could be a number of routes. So how did you pick this route? And having picked this route, what were the challenges? What were the Hillary steps, so to speak, the, the workarounds that were the most difficult to solve in making the film? I think the great challenge is what you're talking about, where this film spans decades. It spans like three of the most important, you know, companies, you know, of our time from the North Face, Patagonia and Esprit. And it could have been any of those different stories. And, you know, personally, like I could have easily spent hours in the 60s and 70s and 80s with them. Mm. But I think it comes back to what we were talking about before about like, what moved us you know, at our core and essentially was this idea of regeneration, of finding, of like, you're not done, of living this life of intention, of pushing. Um, and I think that so much of Chris's story is quite emblematic of what everyone always says about Doug, where he was so demanding and he was like, you know, no detail is small. And really, like, I think he asked this question of like, are you doing enough? For me, like the, you know, it was hard. I had never made a film about someone who I'd never met before, and I had never met Doug. So I was learning about him through all the, you know, through the eyes of his friends. And, you know, I think our, we had like this moment, and because we were making this film over the past seven years, like we had this moment basically when, you know, we tried the hardest thing, which was to put the death of Doug in the beginning of the film. And somehow that opened up that gave us the freedom to tell the story that was in the present tense, that was somehow looking forward in a way that is related to why also we wanted to make the film where this film is very much a film for our kids. Because, you know, everyone like, you know, I've witnessed how terrified they are of climate change. It makes them cry like they're scared. And here was a story that really demonstrates that you can put one foot in front of the other and actually do something. And it can be anything, No, nothing's too small or too big. And it can be like this incredible vision and you can still do it. You can do it even when the worst things in the world happen to you. And so it was that idea of hope and like somehow finding this way to Chris was the best way to tell that story. Coming up on Film Week, more with Chris Tompkins and Chai Vasarelli, the subject and co-director of the new documentary, Wildlife. We'll be back in a minute. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Let's return to LAist Arts and Entertainment reporter John Horn. His guest is Chris Tompkins, the subject of the new documentary Wildlife and the director of the film, Chai Vassarelli. Chris, I recently read Andreas Malm's book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and he basically argues that buying up land, protests, isn't enough, that the people who care about the climate have to become violent and they have to become eco-terrorists because nothing else is going to work. And he traces the history of like the apartheid movement and yeah. suffrage movement about the role that violence played in those and those efforts. And I'm just framing it because you have said that in the scheme of things, thousands or millions of acres isn't a lot. The planet mm -hmm. lost according to the Environmental Research Letters publication, a billion acres of forest between 1960 and 2019. So in that context, as much as, as, as much land as you and your colleagues have preserved in Argentina and Chile, how would you tell me that it matters given the scale of what we're facing right now? Well, first of all, you know, if you're a pacifist at heart, then violence is... Uh, not an option. I, I am a pacifist at heart. That said, I am despairing. And as I said in the film, I'm not afraid of anything. That's not 
special necessarily, except I will not stop becoming more and more aggressive about everything we do. But violence, I think, uh, especially in this day and age, it's a very short-term method. The reaction is swift and it's mighty. And I think there are better ways to go around it. But do I understand it? Yes. There's an old Steve Martin joke called How to Be a Millionaire. First step, get a million dollars. And that's the joke. (laughs) But it is about, you know, part of what you did, part of what Doug did, part of what Yvonne did is you were blessed with a lot of money and you put that money to use in buying up land. For people who don't have a million or a billion dollars, what model do you think your work does? Because it might not be I can't replicate it. People with high net worths might, but let's talk about people who don't have a lot of means. What is the model that you set in a micro level? How does it apply on a macro scale to how people can try to make a difference if they don't have the resources that you and your colleagues did? I think it's always important to remember that there are hundreds of millions, if not a few billion people who get up and they work on these things every day, but they're doing it through the way they live their daily lives. They're they are part of small town, midtown groups who are trying to preserve a waterway. It is not a function of money, especially right now. It is a function of deciding that you want to stop abdicating your future. I uh, I feel really strongly about this. And Chai and I have talked about it several times in the last couple of weeks, how to steer people into doing the things that they love for the things that they love in a means and a and a scale that is inclusive rather than thinking this is some sort of exclusive group, which it absolutely is not. What, what as Doug's money and to a lesser extent my money has been able to do is to instigate be be the match that is struck and the flame begins. And that flame burns everywhere. I'm going to mention another book because I like to read. And this book is called Saving Time by Jenny O'Dell. And it's a book about climate change and how we look at the natural world. It was reviewed in this past Sunday's New York Times, Saving Time by Jenny O'Dell. And the New York Times Times critic talks about this idea of seeing the earth as not something we are standing upon, but that we are living with. And this is what the reviewer wrote. One way to relieve ourselves of time pressure and climate dread, Odell writes, is to restore agency in our own minds to the non-human world, to remember that everything in the universe, including rocks, can initiate action as Odell writes, an understanding of agency that is atypical of the Western mindset. And I think that's also part of your film, that it is nature as a living, breathing thing, including rocks. And I think if we start seeing the world as something that we cohabit rather than have dominion over, it starts to change the way that we think about climate and the future of the planet. Both Chai and I, Um, have met with Pope Francis. I am reminded of this because in his encyclical in 2015, he's the only world leader who has really stepped up and said exactly what you're, the the text that you're reading from. And when when you think about it, it's so obvious that every breath we take and every step we make is tied to the natural world. But a Judeo-Christian ethos forced that separation in our Western consciousness. So I I personally believe that we humans change not so well voluntarily, but in the midst of a crisis when we have no choice. And I do think that one of the things about the film, it took so long to make, but it's actually out there now at a time when people really are letting go of the possibility that humans will dominate planetary natural systems. 
And that's changing very quickly now, not fast enough. Chai, my last question is for you. You can look at this movie and you could be a high net worth person who says, I want to give more of my money to helping save the planet. You could be somebody who loves nature, who wants to go down and visit these beautiful parks in South America. Or you could be a filmmaker who spends a lot of her time outdoors in the natural world. And I'm wondering, as a personal experience, the making of this film and what you saw and what Chris and Doug and Yvonne and a lot of other people were able to do, how does it change your mind about seeing the natural world? And were you changed in the making of this film in any way that you can identify? Um, if you go to these parks in Patagonia and Chile and Argentina, they're absolutely breathtaking. And the sheer scale, the ruggedness. But I'll say, I have to say that one of the things that really stays with me and maybe changed me is Chris and her graciousness and kindness and generosity. You know, we don't have enough of that anymore. You know, we're busy, we're ambitious, like we move fast, we're on our phones. And there's just something about the graciousness that this group of friends share, the way they support each other and how they found this like language of generosity together that mm -hmm. I find incredibly inspiring. And, you know, my first trip down to Patagonia, Marina, our daughter who's nine was two at the time. And I will never forget those moments of, you know, being Chris and Melinda and Jennifer Ridgway, like playing with her and spending time with her. And, you know, Mikey Schaefer, who's on our team, he's a cinematographer in Free Solo. And you shot on this, like taking her to the vegetable garden and just this kindness and like nurturing thing. It's like just being gracious and kind. And I would say that if anything, you know, in the film, I really hope the grit and the strength comes through, but also the generosity of this group of friends and how a group of friends can make a difference. Wildlife is rated PG-13 in limited theatrical release and streaming on Disney+. I'm Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for joining us on Film Week. We look forward to you joining us next week on 89.3 or listening wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great weekend. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever, and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.